but the suffering and the extent of injuries that the remainder of the boys had that lived in that crash, it was just fucking horrific. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. You know we're a part of this fight. The story of transformation is powerful. Welcome to Volume 5 of my interview with H, a 2nd Commando Regiment veteran. This episode picks up right where we left off in Volume 4, just after H returns home from his combat-heavy 2008 deployment to Afghanistan. Well, H, let's jump ahead and let's briefly cover you going home after this deployment. So you come home and you, as we've been discussing you have that utter depletion and you finally get to come home and reset a bit how long does it take for you to feel sort of recharged and back in control again after a deployment of that level of combat intensity and prolonged combat intensity yeah that's a really good question alex look i, I don't think you ever do certainly not whilst in that mind frame as in whilst in the job like it's probably only in these later years now because it takes years to you know sort of probably transition or readjust I don't think we allow ourselves is another key point that ties hand in glove to the first statement I made or comment. If you were to completely sort of, you know, reset yourself or whatever, I don't, I think it'd be sort of, you know, a liability or combat effective. It's the, your hyper awareness and hypertension. And you've got to remember when we come back, we don't come back and go on holiday. Yeah, we come back and start another role, another mission, more intense training and start talking about when we're going back. Or there's another deployment somewhere else because we're only talking about Afghanistan here. So you might go to Southeast Asia, the Philippines on a training mission. Yeah, you uh, may do an exchange for counterterrorism somewhere in Europe or the US. Most of our exercises every other week are extremely intense. I mean, we kill people in training, sadly. The point I'm making is when you come back, you know, the most we'd ever get off then, especially if you're in a key position, is you might get literally like a couple of weeks. So, you're not coming back on holiday, yeah. Yeah. So a couple of weeks on a holiday, you're still trying to work it out to reintegrate with your family, let alone yourself. And I think there's just a healthy level, probably unhealthy, sorry, of acting you become too good at and versed at and accustomed to. You just know or learn quickly what the right answers are. But that's not your answer. It's like this is the right action. This is how I need to behave in this environment because I'm at a kid's barbecue or lunch with some friends, you know, as in uh, your girlfriend or wife's friends who aren't defence spouses. And that's why, you know, when there are serious issues with guys or girls or sadly people take their own life and you'll hear these statements common like, oh, you know, he, he seemed like he was happy. You know, you'll get people that people will know, you know, because they were depressed or there was, you know, the, the whatever telltale signs or, you know, leading up characteristics and that were, you know, obvious that that person wasn't well. But you'll also get, like I said, those comments where it's like, oh, I thought he was going really well. You know, he seemed happy. 
So that's our mindset acting and compensating for how we really are. And we're doing that so that we can fit in and appear to be normal so that we can keep doing what's not normal. So you feel like you're maintaining this facade on one hand and you're also operating at this high performance level and you know the toll it's having on you over time. Yet now you've had two combat heavy deployments over there and you still have your eye to go back. You're still addicted to that drug. Oh, 100%. And that's why adrenaline is a drug that people don't understand. When you're addicted to other drugs, you know, everyone's like, well, why doesn't he just stop? That's what people don't understand because it's an addiction. You know, that's why serial killers don't stop killing until they're caught. People don't understand it's an addiction. You know, yes, they're mentally unwell, rah, 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 but they're addicted to the rush of what that killing does. So in our case, we're addicted to that constant high of adrenaline and that addiction just sort of overrides everything else. Someone suffers a cardiac arrest, what are the paramedics injecting them? When they're dead, they inject them adrenaline. <laughs> like, you know, I can't emphasize the strength of this stuff. So when you're feeding it to yourself all the time, you know, and that's when guys come back and as I noted myself doing, you know, you would do things that were just, you know, you'd never normally do, whether that be recreationally or, or whatever. Um, because again, you need it. You're used to this level of adrenaline and you know, you'll now do things to get it. It might be driving a vehicle, you know, stupid. It might be doing you know, dangerous and risky things and doing other things that you know you definitely should not be doing, but you'll do them because it's exciting. Albeit how wrong, albeit the consequences may hurt people, you know, and these are things that, you know, I know that I did. And yeah, you know, they're things that yeah, I regret because they did hurt people and people that I loved, but you're an addict. And the drug's combat and nothing will get in the way of me getting more of it. When you're in that mindset, that person getting more of it. Well, you say that nothing will get in your way, but looking at your career big picture wise for a moment, you, you know, started a while ago deploying to Somalia, then Timor, you're running the counterterrorism Olympics and working with Tag East and all that. You've had a couple of Afghanistan deployments under your belt. You are becoming increasingly senior. You're one of our most senior experienced commandos at this point in time, and you're earning quite the international reputation. But even on the 2008 trip, you were starting to feel the pull of obligation of having to give your expertise and knowledge elsewhere. You were at that academy and you were finding creative ways to also get back in the field. But I can imagine as time goes on, you're getting more and more obligation placed upon you that on the next deployment, you still have this addiction. You still want to be out there in combat, but are you getting to satisfy it in the same way? Or are you having to step up to the responsibilities of higher level of rank and command? That's a reality. You know, I have a saying, you either lead, follow or fuck off. Now that sounds a bit harsh, but I could have gone up the chain, you know, a little bit faster or in a little bit smoother of a direction. However, I don't regret anything I did. I stalled things as long as I could to get more time on the tools, as we call it, so to be more at a lower level, to get more experience and to be where I believed I was suited best, which is, you know, influencing their platoons and teams, you know, the tactics of soldiers, you know, like directly and looking after their management because that's something that I was extremely passionate about and that I believe that a lot of others put themselves before the men, whereas you've got to put the men first. Coming back to your question, that's you know, a, a reality of attaining rank. 
moving into higher positions and also having the respect and credibility of all the shit you've done before being acknowledged that they're going to make you or put you in that position because they see you as the right fit. You know, so leading into a 2010 deployment, which is with Delta Company as a sergeant major, you know, we had an excellent, excellent crew of uh, operators and a bloody good run up because we just spent 2009 doing the counterterrorism role in the uh, TAG East training second to none. So we sort of rolled off TAG and uh, did a few things and just rolled overseas. I mean, there wasn't much of a changeover. Myself and a few other senior people knew what was going on as in we made sure that our deck was stacked with who we wanted. I knew on that trip that it would only be in when we went out as a company on, on high-level gigs that I had um, you know, chances of combat. So you know, I'd accepted that. And I guess I just prided myself in trying to make sure that the teams had everything that they needed in regards to support, equipment, and, you know, the cover is in making sure that their platoon commanders, or one in particular, which, you know, you've interviewed, you know, that they were doing everything that they, you know, should do in regards to commanding those guys to keep everyone safe and to get everyone home, hopefully in one piece. And as it turned out, our first company operation, this area called Gumbad, we landed... Um, Myself, the officer commanding, a couple of snipers and JTAC, we flew in our own helicopter and landed on the top of this hill to provide some overwatch and strategic uh, correction, some surgical fire support. And then you had um, platoons down in this valley clearing it and sweeping through. And um, this turned into quite an eventful 96 hours with a lot of shooting going on as well. And we knew this. The way we constructed this plan was, well, no one had been in there for a while. And I remember sitting down with a few of the boys and we're kind of like, well, why hasn't anyone been in here? And they're like, well, every time they go in there, they get shot up. And Intel tells us there's a lot more in there than what we think. And I just looked across at the boss and said, we've been on the ground a couple of days or whatever it was. I said to him, um, this pretty well sounds like the, you know, a good opportunity to first company operation, you know. We'll go and sharpen our teeth here. And that we did. As a joke, because a, a few of the boys who knew me, as in that were still down in the teams, as in senior team commanders and whatnot, they'd have punts at me because you know I wasn't in the team, or you know, they were going to get more bloody, uh, get in more action than I was. And uh, that's why it was funny. Is that particular night when we landed, we we're sitting there. Once a helicopter takes off, you just have some quiet time um, to pick up your surroundings. So you might move off a bit quickly, but the best thing to do. We were in a very, very high feature that was uh, aggressive, rocky outcrops. So the best thing for us to do was to just hold tight where we got off. And we had an issue kicking off some of the, um, the resup balls. Like they'd gone down in between rocks. So I knew, I already knew we had a few problems, nothing major, but, you know, we're, we're slightly on the back foot already. So we're having this quiet time. The boss says to me, um, well, it's coming over the radio in my earpiece that this has got some movement over on their side because we've pushed out into a wider circle. And I'm like, well, yeah, what are they? Are they armed? Or who are they? He goes, yeah, I think they're armed. I'm like, well, fucking shoot them. And... Um, so then uh, I've gone over the other side and because uh, he's taken a shot off and um, hit one who I believe was wounded or something. Um, so he's taken off with this other fella. Um, then I jumped up and grabbed um, the uh, JTAC that was with us and sort of we took off in pursuit, chasing these fellas through the rocks until I caught up with them and um, finished both of them off, I guess you'd say. So we shot, or I shot both of them. It was kind of funny because then that was, that turned out to be the first confirmed kill for the company trip, and they're like, "How, how does H manage to get the first kills up when he's still the sergeant major?" So that was sort of a bit of a joke, but yeah, the boys fast. They quickly overtook me for the rest of the um, for the rest of the trip because we, we had a lot of engagements, and um, like I said, we had a really really good teams and some good leadership there. 
But were you able to comfortably step aside your desire to keep feeding the drug addiction, basically, with the responsibility of command you had? Or was it a balancing act you kept playing? Yeah, no, it was, it was a balancing act. But I also was pretty comfortable then myself, as in, you know, like, yeah, I wanted more, but I knew I'd had a lot more than most, if that makes sense. So you kind of just get to trying to work it out, explain it. It's quite difficult. I think as a man, man... And as an operator, you've never had enough, but I certainly noticed with senior guys who have had a lot, you just change a little. You might have seen almost enough to kind of stop chasing it so hard. You might have had enough near misses and sort of sat down and kind of thought, you know, like, and you might have started to bury enough mates, you know, to make you just think a little bit harder or to look at the picture of your kids or your wife or your girlfriend a little bit longer and just think, you know, You've had a good run. You know, focus your efforts on using your experiences, you know, your knowledge and keep your men as best trained, as best cooked, safe and with the best mindsets as possible to, you know, make them the most combat effective special forces troops on the ground. And that's kind of, to be honest with you, that was kind of my mantra to self, how I guess justified to myself to be, you know, sitting in the rear when they were in contact. But, you know, you've got to, that was a position I took. You know, I, I knew what I was in for, you know, that some operations you'd be out there on the ground and other operations, you know, you wouldn't be. You know, I'll tell you, it's hard. We got in a couple of stouses, when, uh, or one in particular, that Yankee platoon was in and, you know, they had a lot of casualties on the ground. It was not looking good. Bram Connolly's platoon. This is Bram Connolly's platoon. You know, I can remember that day very clearly. You know, noting that I went over there early in 2010, I jacked up a crew, took about six or eight guys with me, and we went in there a good few weeks earlier than everyone else to just start getting the atmospherics and just sort of changing some of the dynamics here on the ground, which they knew the strength of my personality with some of the particular personalities from other units on the ground, I mean, TK there with the other unit that we'd be able to do. So that happened. The point I'm making coming back to, you know, the incident with Bram's platoon, with the Yankee platoon, was... Um, I was there when the um, Blackhawk accident and I was standing in the CP uh, that night when it came over the radio because I was trying to get on that bird or would have been on Black Tour, wouldn't have been in the one that crashed. I was actually trying to get on the other bird just to, <laughs> that, well, there you go, you know, to go out and get some basically. But under the species of, you know, I needed to see how the ground dynamics have changed, which is just bullshit. It's just me getting on an operation. But the ACL, the aircraft limits were too high, you know, because we were banging the centre of summer and we were pushing everything to the envelope and overloading things or trying not to avoid overloading things. So I'd already gone through that. That was my first week there, those three fatalities. But probably what was more scarring, to be honest with you, was the injuries. I mean, when blokes are dead, it's hard, but they're dead. But the suffering and the extent of injuries that the remainder of the boys had that lived in that crash, it was just fucking horrific. So, um, so I'd already gone through that. So when we started to get, when Bram's platoon, we couldn't land the support helicopters, you know, we couldn't do this, we couldn't do that. And we were just getting casualties, you know, sort of coming over the uh, radio fairly constantly with the shrapnel wounds and gunshot wounds. You know, we had a friendly fire incident, you know, it was that chaotic. And, you know, I found, you know, even though through that, you know, I remained what I considered to be relatively calm and helpful and, and everything else uh, in regards to giving the advice and just making sure everyone's doing their right job and we're giving them every single bit of support we can. Because there's at times you can't do anything because that's the other mastery is when people in the rear who may be overzealous and you've got a ground commander, which happened to be Bram Connolly, as you mentioned, doing everything he can on the ground. Then I'm back there, and at times I'll tell you, I was telling people to shut the fuck up. 
frankly, and to stay out of it because all you're doing is putting additional duress on that guy. There's a lot of mastery involved there as in where and when do I try and inject and influence or help something and when is the time to just leave it and suck it up as in there's nothing we can do here other than listen to that radio right now and listen to it really well but to interpret importantly and keyly what is going on on the ground. Don't do stuff for the sake of it, control traffic flow and let it be what it will be. That's right and that takes a lot of experience and a lot of discipline. It's not easy standing there listening to guys get shot, listening to people trying to get a black hawk to land to evacuate people that are dying. That's not easy. So there's a lot of mastery involved there, but there's also at the time, I think we all manage it. But then afterwards, there is, you know, somewhat of a sinking feeling, you know, whether you did enough or, you know, what more you could have you done. And, you know, we go over this with the, AA, with the after action reports and whatnot. And then, you know, you still got to get all the boys that are still good to go. You still got to get them all back. And, you know, and then, and then there's a job the next day. I want to ask then, H, comparing that to one of the many intense combat scenarios you and I have discussed on these podcasts, on those contact situations you're in, you have the adrenaline rush sustaining you and it's, you're reinforced by the reality of being there and you just have to deal with it and you can quantifiably measure the impact you make on the battlefield. Whereas in this scenario, you are questioning yourself, I presume from what you're saying, more than you might in a contact scenario because your effect, while I'm sure is measurable, it is harder to quantify from that rear echelon perspective, and you don't have the same adrenaline, you don't have the same immediacy of the environment, does that stress actually put a greater toll on you? Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, but the risk of sounding, uh, you know, I don't mean this in an arrogant way. I mean it, you know, as humbly as I can say, you know, you kind of know, and we don't say a lot to each other, as in, you know, operator the operator, you know, there's not a lot of emotion that gets around, especially when you're over there, maybe when you're home and you've had a few beers or a Tanzac day. But I was... Uh, very quietly comfortable that I was doing everything I could. And I guess that's what gave me insurance. And I wasn't ever like worried, worried or overthinking things too much. It's when you walk along a hallway, it's just that nod you get. Like, you know, I can't explain it. You can hear and feel how the guys talk about you. So you know, you know, whether you're respected or not, your heart knows. Just like if you're fucking not liked, you know, you know. I knew how the boys felt. Because, you know, I saw how they treated me. I heard how they spoke about me, how they acted around me. And I guess that just, you know, it's good to have that reassurance. Do I need it? Fuck, I guess ultimately we all need it. But it's not something that I do things for. You know, as I've always said, you know, I do me. And, you know, I think that's the key to life really, isn't it? You know, if you do you, you'll work out whether you need to adjust you or not. But it's the people that are trying to do something they're not. You know, you can tell they're out of their comfort zone. You can tell they're acting. You can tell it's not genuine. You can tell it's not sincere. You know they're not competent. All those things. You know, if you're just doing you and you's doing really well, well, just keep doing you. If you's not doing really well, then inward scheme and work out where you need to adjust your fire, whether you need to turn to the left a little bit, turn to the right a little bit, go faster ahead, like whatever it be. But, you know, certainly for me, I know what you're asking. Definitely. And, you know, for me at no stage was I particularly worried, alarmed, concerned or anything at all, you know, about my own performance. You know, and like I said, I started that trip in a blaze of glory. We you know, one we walked into, it's well-renowned, it's documented now, so there's no point hiding it. You know, Rotation 12, you know, was an extremely hard, unfair rotation for the commandos and for lots of different reasons. And then we had the bad accident. 
is in the Black Hawk accident. Coming in on the back of that, I already knew that we had to do a lot more and I drummed this into the guys before we left. We had to do a lot more and we had to do it a lot better and we needed to be a lot sharper. And we were already sharp. You know, I'd argue that everyone says their company's the best, but key personnel I had in Delta Company back then or we had in Delta Company were, you know, undoubtedly some of the absolute best guys in the unit. You could one or truly hold its own. And I just knew we had to do it 10 times better. And we did. We, did. we didn't have a single major negative incident. Um, in fact, we had, you know, many, many, many positive incidents, but that's what we needed to do. So the boys might get sick of you laboring on the small points. You know, I still do it now with things that I do. You know, you can see people sort of almost eye roll when you bring up that one percenter, like, yeah, I know, but you got to say it. You got to reiterate all the one percenters to get your hundred percent worth out of that team. Every time. Every time. Well, H, that is yet another rotation that is unbelievably hectic draining confronting and i'm sounding a bit repetitive but that is just the nature of these deployments you're finding yourself on so you wrap up your third as you board the flight home how do you feel in the moment there do you feel satisfied Uh, again unfortunately alex you ask too good a question sometimes there's a level of satisfaction and there's also this other feeling because you're leaving and we have this when i say we well i'll speak for myself but i know a lot of guys get it and have it you have this feeling that you can never, ever achieve enough or that you should have done more. So what daunts on you when you literally climb onto that aircraft just before you fly out is that it's over, that it's done. And, you know, like these scouts and things are cycling through your head. And this is, you know, where you need to be real careful because this stuff can stuff you up, you know, you know, of what you should have done better, more, harder, faster. And like I said, and it's like a cyclone, certainly with my head, because it thinks fast and it's forward thinking and at times way too sort of strategic or analytical. So, you know, in those minutes, you're going over every operation, every incident, and, you know, do I do this and do I do that? So there's the elation of it's over, but that is probably the least where people would think that. I think for a normal person, they would go, oh, you're excited to come home. You are, but you're not. And then on your third, fourth, fifth deployment, you know as soon as you get home, you just want to come back. I guess in summary, I was very happy because it's not about me. I was very, very happy and content like I had a overwhelming professional content that on that deployment the men of Delta Commando Company performed outstandingly and I knew that and I mean you know we'll say that but like I knew especially after the previous trip and all the misfortunes they'd had which just you know seemed to snowball upon snowball I knew that we'd put ourselves back well and truly on the map and, you know, I had numerous accolades to that extent from some very senior people across the command because they weren't about us and them. They were about the command's identity and the command needed to fix its identity. And we succeeded in that. But importantly, you know, all the guys, several injuries, but, you know, we got everyone come home and I knew everyone gave their absolute, absolute most. And that's all you can ask. And you rightly deserve to feel a bit of, pride and satisfaction in that as you're in a position of leadership exactly you know i had a saying that i used to say to the boys you know i didn't believe in the word of excellence you know i would say we need to look at excellence as a dot on the horizon because you can never get to the horizon so we are always always in everything we do we're striving towards that dot and as you know how the horizon works when you get halfway towards excellence that excellence dot is pushed out further again 
because it's on the horizon. And that's how I used to explain it to them. And that's, that's what the company did. Well, H, as always, I appreciate you sharing with us not only your stories, but your insights, your wisdom, and the lessons you've learned. You've got plenty more stories to tell, and we will hear them more in the future. But meanwhile, thanks for coming back on the show for today's round. Hey, thanks very much again, Alex. It was a pleasure. I'm very humbled to be asked to come back again. So I hope the listeners get something out of um, <laughs> those, that hour or so of yarns. Thank you again, mate. There's still more to tell of H's story. He'll be back on the show in the future to finish telling it. Meanwhile, we have loads of other Special Forces content on this channel. Referenced in this conversation with H was Bram Connolly and the Battle of Zabat Calais. To hear more from Yankee Alpha himself, go back to Season 3 and listen to Number 47, Bram Connolly. Here's a two-minute clip from that episode about that battle. Oh, I think, you know, the Battle of Zabat Calais was probably the main test of my, not my abilities, because I didn't have really that much to do with it. To be fair, the team commanders, yeah, to give you a brief understanding of it, we did a helicopter assault two o'clock in the afternoon, as you do, into a high altitude area where we couldn't take the whole commando force with us because of the heat and the altitude. So we whittled the numbers down. I think it ended up being something like 16 and then a few other additions. And then we got into a gunfight with, we know there is at least 13 Taliban because we killed 13 of them, but there was a whole heap of other guys there as well. And they were all armed with PKMs. Um, and we had... 556M4. So it was a real stoush. And it was one of those days where we landed in the wrong spots. We were isolated. Every team had to fight, not only to get out of the isolated position, they had to fight into the buildings that they were being suppressed from. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst women and children in those buildings. And it was a real testament to the training that the guys had had, the team commanders especially, to win that day. So, and for me, you know, I got off that helicopter when we first got there and I remember being absolutely overwhelmed by stimulus. You know, I had a feed from an F-15 above me. I had company headquarters in one ear. I had my team commanders in the other ear. I had my signaler talking to me, multiple channels. I had my JTAC talking to aircraft and calling aircraft in. Then I had some guy shooting at me. We bomb burst the four of us out of this aircraft as it took off under fire. And then I, I just remember looking up, getting shot at, and not knowing really whether to look at the feed from the aircraft, whether to talk to someone on the radio or to shoot back. And I decided to shoot back. So I did, I shot back. And then whatever happened then happened. I don't dwell on that stuff. It just is what it is. The four of us fought through this orchard and came across a whole lot of abandoned flip-flops and prayer mats and stuff. So those guys have been really caught out. They were on the run through this orchard. Now we'd been overstretched and I was no longer in command. It was all over the place. We were losing for an hour with three prior ones and medical evacuations and the like to we won the day and then got out of there. It was a really tough, hard slog. I think there was five gallantry awards in total for that day, which I've been told is the most since in a single action since Vietnam. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I have been told that. I'd be interested to hear if that is the case. Subscribe to this podcast in your app of choice, YouTube, or on our website to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed these conversations with H, please jump onto Apple Podcasts and rate us five stars. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.